Good afternoon and welcome to our podcast, Jargon. This is Peter Purcell. And Bill Imany. And uh, we're really glad that uh, you are, are here to uh, listen to this podcast, all seven of you. I, we've heard that we've expanded our base a little bit. From so, three to seven now. From three to seven. Hey, yeah, it's over 100%, Bill, you know, and I can do that math and I don't even have my toes open um, because I have to count with my fingers and toes. Today, what we'd like to do is talk a little bit about waiting too long and, you know, having companies that uh, are facing tough times, whether it's manufacturing companies, retail companies, oil fill services, and whether they were struggling based on the price of oil right now or the trade war or whatever, waiting too long to act because there are a series of things that you can do to cut cost and, you know, keep yourself competitive. Um, so that's kind of what we'd like to chat about today. Well, and I think we're really trying to talk about waiting too long to cut costs, really. Let's hit, the, let's hit this right on the head here because we're really talking about companies who are either being faced with pressures from the, let's, uh, whatever it might be, any type of competitive pressure. Maybe it's um, international. Maybe it's trade wars. Maybe it's, like you said, it could be energy prices and, and the like. And really, what are they doing about it? And, and, and are the executives taking quick action out of that and we we typically when when a company does realize that they are hitting a starting to hit a wall oftentimes and i would say 90 percent of the times companies wait too long to actually take action or they take the wrong action right i mean i can't tell you how many conversations that bill you and i both have had either over lunches coffees or whatever where after we've helped the company you know long down the road they've come you know the executives have said you know i wish we didn't we didn't wait. We we should have, you know, done our reduction in force faster. We should have restructured faster. We should have been a little bit more proactive faster. But, we, you know, we, we just didn't read the tea leaves right. So, well, I think a lot of them realized that they didn't have enough confidence in their decision-making or what they could, could do, what the possibilities were, until they really saw what they were. And I think that inaction is usually what happens in a company if – if um, a, a, a executive says to their team, okay, guys, we need to cut costs, well, everybody's quick to point out where other costs can be cut, not in their area. Right. So the chief operating officer says, well, you can cut stuff in the back office. The chief accounting officer says, well, you can cut stuff in the field. And you're stuck with this push and pull, and you don't know where the real answers are. So today we're really going to talk about how and when and what are the thoughts and what are some of the things that we're seeing in the market today and even historically around what does it take to actually take action. Right. Well, the bottom line, cutting costs is never fun and uh, can't really be considered easy uh, just, just, just as a human being. But what we're going to talk about today are some things that you can do very, very quickly and um, get a lot of benefit. Yeah, so when you look at today, what happens is companies usually follow one of three paths when they're in a situation where they see either a downturn or they're starting to see a downturn in the business or they're seeing competitive pressures where they know they need to cut costs. And there's typically three avenues they take. The first one is they start looking in the market for acquisition opportunities where they can essentially say, oh, we bought this other company and now we're more lean because we brought this other company in and now we've cut some, made, achieved some synergies through that acquisition. That's one um, that's option number one they take. Option number two is they're aggressive and proactive about taking the bull by the horns and cutting costs, uh, number two. And number three, which happens more often than not, 
is the executives just kind of wait it out or they do it kind of halfway where they maybe they'll sit in the budgeting process and say, oh, we're cutting travel expense for the rest of the year. Or they, they pinch on things that really can't go away and they end up creeping back. They, they, they'll say in their budget, oh, we're going to have a 5% uh, reduction in workforce across the board. And so they make the budget cuts, but then once all the horse trading happens when they get into the new year, those costs creep back in. And that third option where they where really what they're doing is they're waiting it out and they're not taking proactive action around that. And so if we look at companies and that, that first category of being proactive, Peter, maybe share some of your thoughts on what you've seen in the past and the success they've achieved out of being proactive around cutting costs. Well, some folks who know me fairly well uh, know I'm a little bit of a motorhead. Um, I actually did a lot of work in Detroit early in my career, and I just love cars. So you take a look at the Ford Motor Company. I, I really like the way that uh, Ford back in 2008 uh, saw that there was going to be a downturn. So very, very aggressively started cutting costs, reducing their product lines, uh, did a really, really good job of going out and getting a line of credit so that when things did go bad in 2008, 2009, uh, they were the only uh, automobile manufacturer in the United States, U.S.-based automobile manufacturer that didn't have to get federal money or merge with somebody like, you know, uh, Chrysler had to, to merge with uh, Damler and, you know, all these other things. Well, Honda's another example too, Peter. Yeah, I mean, actually, like yeah. along those same lines, uh, they they would uh, they started forecasting cost reductions and boost their operating profits significantly, and worked on cutting production costs. So that's another example. How about outside the uh, automotive and manufacturing industry? I mean, I I think of retail, right? Oh, so retail, you know, so you compare Best Buy to the whole Sears um, Sears Kmart thing. Best Buy has been under pressure for many, many years. You know, once Amazon came online uh, and all these other uh, online uh, resellers of computer hardware and, you know, selling uh, all sorts of electronics online, Best Buy has done a fantastic job of continually cutting costs, downsizing the size of stores. So if you remember walking into a Best Buy 10 years ago, it's a huge store. Now they're very small and very, very focused and, and typically very focused to the community that they sell to, and their online sales are, are actually very good. So when I have hard-to-find electronics, I, I go to Best Buy, but they continue. They have been in cost-cutting mode and continue to basically wring every penny out of every dollar. And they're still around, too. And they're, and they're still around. And then you look at um, Bed Bath & Beyond and Target. Um, Target's done a lot of things around digital fulfillment, um, but, uh, and Bed Bath & Beyond really did a... Uh, I'll say a hard-hitting um, cost structure reduction, re reducing corporate staff significantly, refreshing stores, and also reducing inventory. So if you think about that, those companies really were proactive in um, addressing those things. And, and frankly, retail right now, the bricks-and-mortar retail are the ones getting hammered um, the, the hardest. So let's talk about, so we've talked about some companies that have been proactive. How about the ones that are um, that have said, well, you know what we're going to do is let's go merge with somebody. That'll solve our problems, right? Right. So you, you look at Sears and Kmart, and I sort of half laugh because, you know, Sears has, has been around for me, and you know, I lived overseas, so Sears kind of represented the United States. You know, getting the Sears catalog back when I was a kid, boy, you know, that's paper, guys, you know, for those of you who've never seen one. Um, the bottom line is Sears, you know, merged with Kmart, 
and the whole thought there was um, they were going to create a much larger organization um, and try to get synergies. But what happened was is they didn't do the cost cutting. They did not do the rationalization that you should do when you're trying to uh, keep yourself afloat. And now, where do you find craftsman tools? I mean, Craftsman and Kenmore are their crown jewel um, brands, and you can buy them anywhere now, uh, pretty much. I mean, I, I was in right. Lowe's less than half an hour ago, and there's a huge Craftsman display there. And that hurts me. You know, that, that's, that's a brand that is going away because they were not proactive enough. Yeah, and, and but then stepping outside of that, even look at um, like uh, eBay um, and then look at even in the financial sector with um, Bank of America Merrill Lynch. I mean, this is and th this is one of these classic cases where um, the, a integration and they they put together, thought they were going to get some synergies out of it and they didn't. And really what they um, it was really a failure of making the right decisions and um, communication became the problem there, right? Well, yeah. I mean, and I would hazard a guess that if you were to go out and take a look at any bank, whether it's Wells Fargo, Bank of America, or any of those banks that went out and bought an investment arm, boy, that's two completely opposite uh, cultures. Think about it. Bankers, they don't like risk at all. Merrill Lynch and, you know, all these others, that, that's what they thrive on is people betting on the, the, uh, the stock market. And so the synergies aren't there. Um, and then on top of that, if you look at some of the uh, regulations that they're still operating under, there's no way. Whereas if you go to Fidelity, Fidelity is a, you know, they, they, they're an investment house first, and eh, they provide some basic banking second, and they have exploded over the years. And again, they keep their costs down a lot of online um, activities, and, you know, th they did it right, and unfortunately these larger banks didn't. Yeah, and then even going over to the telecommunications, Sprint and Nextel, um, they're, they're huge culture clashes there, because you were alluding to a culture, right, of mm -hmm. risk versus non-risk. Those two did, and they, and, um, they, they, had, they, had, they had difficulty, and the stock took on a junk rating at, at one point. So, if you if you look at these mergers, and this is what's happening today right now, is a lot of these companies are going, well, we're going to go buy somebody else. So they go present that to their board, and they're getting a lot of pushback from investors right now because the investors are looking, going, wait a minute, um, you're doing okay, or and we're about to hit the downturn. And the investors are pretty smart; they know that, and they look at the the company that's being acquired, and they go, well. They're in the same situation. So if I put two mediocre companies together, um, I, am I going to get something great out of that? I mean, that just doesn't make sense. It's like I'm going to put, uh, you know, two really bad cars um, and, and hope they both work or something. I don't know. I, I just I, yeah, it just doesn't it it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I think that. Uh, you know, if you were to merge two companies, average or great, and not take advantage of the synergies and not go through and be very brutal about rationalizing your costs, your organization structure, and all that, you, you've you've lost. But this is what the investors are seeing. They're, they right. they don't have confidence. They're smart. That they they don't have confidence. Then they're, they're smarter now, where they go, they can they have exposure to all the information that they can and they can see it quickly and go, forget it. So now what's happening is. Um, you're, yeah, some of the mergers are going through, but the ones that aren't, where they're struggling with um, 
uh, either uh, uh, shareholders or um, investors or, or board members, um, they're having to fight and they're not able to make that acquisition. So they're hoping on a pipe dream. So now they're they're sitting there going, well, let's see what happens next. So what ends up happening when they wait? Well, what what and ends they up, can't merge and they right, can't merge and they somebody. can't merge. Well, I mean, so because we were talking about cars and we were uh, you know we were talking about you know trying to merge to to continue cost cutting. I mean, think about Fiat Chrysler trying to merge with Renault and how close that got. And then the board said no, absolutely not, because they didn't see the the synergies. Unlike when Renault and um, Opel merged, there were clear synergies. But if you wait, what's going to end up happening is the board and the investors are going to come knocking at the door and say, hey, you got to do something. The problem with that, and Bill, you can definitely talk about this a little better than me, then you go into scramble mode. And Bill, when you're in scramble yeah, mode, I don't know about you, is, but when you're in scramble, when I'm in scramble mode, I don't always but, necessarily you know, make the best But here's decision. what really happens is the board comes in and says, hey, you know what? You need to bring a big consulting firm in to um, shake things up. And by the way, my friend works at mega firm XYZ, and they're going to come in and help you guys out. And it's, it's the old, um, we're the consultants and we're here to help adage. Well, we know what happens there. The first thing, it's a, I'll call it a scorch and burn type approach they take because they're coming in hired by either the board or um, some activist investor group or some, something like that. And in the worst case, if they're in bankruptcy, they're brought in by a, a, uh, the court to actually fix their company. But in, in non-bankruptcy cases, they're coming in and having to, um, they're bringing someone from the outside in. And by the way, what we see happen time and time again with these companies when they bring someone that from the outside that's been brought in by the board, not by internal management, they, they, it damages the culture. And a lot of the executives end up leaving, and a lot of the good people end up leaving the company, and, they're, and they typically make the wrong decisions. And I, I like your analogy about cutting fat versus cutting muscle, right? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, so what we see over and over again in a situation like that is, you know, what you really want to do is cut dead wood and fat. And, you know, uh, what ends up happening is you end up cutting muscle, tendon, and actually breaking bones. Um, so critical, uh, you know, differentiations, uh, differentiating service lines uh, get cut out. Uh, senior execs who actually make money for the company or who are good leaders leave and then your best and brightest leave. And by the way, there's tons of companies out there who've already gone through being proactive and they're looking for your best people and they're going to hire them in because they know they can grow. Because guess what? You do this wrong, you come out of the downturn, you're going to be stunted. I mean, you've cut muscle, tendon, and bone. You're not going to be able to recover faster than somebody else who all they did was tone up got rid of a bit of fat, and by the way, they're ready to run. Right, and, and typically what ends up happening is the um, firm will come in and take a look at some set of financial numbers and purely from a numbers perspective look at a profit, a product line and go, that product line's losing money, get rid of it. Well, come to find out, it's really not losing money. They're actually absorbing most of the overhead in the company, and maybe it was too much overhead, and they, don't, they fail to really understand the dynamics of the business and they decide to cut a product line out or a service line out or spin something off that's actually the most profitable part of the business, and then they're left with something that 
is is worse off than they were before, or they they make some uh, decisions to either outsource something to maybe one of their uh, subsidiary consulting companies that can outsource it for them that costs, ends up costing the company twice as much in the long run because they're stuck with some long-term contract and they're unable to scale back when they need to. And, and, and the reality is, is companies, if you're, if you're facing this, companies have taken the proactive approach and been successful about that. So we're going to talk about some of those companies and what they did and how you guys can go after that and actually achieve some of those benefits. And probably the, the uh, best example, and if you look at Intel, for example, and some of the things they did, and some of it was very tactical. They didn't take a scorched earth, but they really looked at their capabilities in the company. And so they um, implemented formal sales and operations planning processes, which actually improved cycle time throughout the company. But that's a very tactical step to take and may not sound as, as um, interesting at the, uh, in the news, but it actually drove out costs in their company. Um, they also moved to a vendor managed inventory model which again, very tactical, but it, it actually helped them manage their inventory and reduce uh, their, their, um, uh, their uh, capital costs. So those are some things they, they did from a chip, chip assembling process. They also reduced cycle time there. But again, tactical things that can happen within a company, variety of those things, they add up to something big. Well, the other thing that Intel did is, you know, the chip industry is very, very competitive. Right. And, uh, you know, at a global as well as at a local level. And uh, what Intel did was uh, a great job also of, of rationalizing their, their product lines and deciding to get out of product lines that they knew, you know, they weren't going to be number one in. And um, so they're, they're blowing and going as, as, as a result of that. Right. And then Heineken, um, they, they went, through, went through a zero-based budgeting effort to actually um, um, start automating processes. So if you think about... Um, it's very difficult for organization to look down and do a zero-based budgeting, and it sounds cliche to say that, but frankly, if you're in that situation, really rationalizing everything in the company as they did and automate processes along the way is another example. Um, the one I, I, I really like is uh, what FedEx did around yeah, um, rationalizing their, um, te their technologies and really they had a lot of legacy technologies around the company, and they went through and rationalized it. And that's not an easy thing to do because you're going to have somebody in one location that, well, we got to have this, uh, you know, this dispatch system that has X, Y, Z, and it takes a lot of change management. But they were able to successfully do that and use more cloud, cloud move to the cloud, right? Well, and, and actually I would also like to point out that FedEx has done a really great job of actually incorporating what I would consider is realistic AI and machine learning into their their route management. Um, you know the the other transportation company, the other big transportation company is now Amazon, right? Everybody is worried about the Amazon, you know, the gorilla, that, you know, the gorilla that's in the middle of the table. FedEx recently canceled their contract with Amazon to deliver Amazon packages, took a hit on the stock market, but they could not have done that without going through the exercise bill that you, you just mentioned. Rationalizing their technology, rationalizing their roots, using AI and machine learning to um, you know, figure out how to make things more efficient. And they are prob probably today one of the most automated companies out there 
when you look at their sorting centers and you know their super center in Memphis, but they have super centers all over the country. Um, the amount of automation and the number of touches that have been removed where humans have to actually interact with the package uh, during the sorting process is tremendous. Whereas unfortunately UPS hasn't gotten there yet, which is why UPS is still, I think, just personally, I think still fairly closely tied with, with Amazon. But UPS, if UPS doesn't go through a similar exercise, we're going to be talking about them kind of in a not-so-nice way in, in about another year or two. Right, right. But if you think about this, all of these different approaches, they, every company takes it has a different approach. We talked about how um, sales and operations planning at, at Intel. We talked about FedEx around using some technologies. And then we, we also talked about Heineken doing something from a budgeting perspective. There's not a one-size-fits-all. And one thing to be cautioned of is, yeah, it might be great for FedEx to put in artificial intelligence and some of those technologies, but it's not great for everyone and being smart about it. And I think, unfortunately, some of those things are being oversold in the marketplace to everybody as a cure-all, so be cautious of that. Well, hence this podcast, Jargon, getting rid of, you know, jargon. Useless terms, right? Getting rid of useless terms and figuring out what, what's real. But uh, to, j- just to beat, beat a dead horse here with, with what Bill, Bill, what you just said is, look, the bottom line is you have to be proactive. And number two, you have to cut cost. Number three, you have to do better with what you have. And right. you need to protect your crown jewels, and you need to protect what makes you competitively differentiated. Wow, that's a big, big set of consulting words. But whatever makes you different, and, and makes you better than your competition, those are the areas where you need to focus. And right. so when, when you go through and you talk about these success stories, that's what these companies have done, I think. Right, and, and so the big question that it's always being, the next question is, this, well, how do we go about doing this? How does a company actually do this and do it right? Well, you hire a big consulting firm, don't you, Bill? Um, of course not. <laughs> but uh, but but we're really practically speaking, what you really need to do is engage people in the organization, engage the right people in the organization. And we always say, take a tops down, bottoms up approach. Mm-hmm. Top tops down is what you just talked about is really understanding your differentiators in the market and how are you going to um, what's your strategy and making sure that's that that's clear and concise. But then the bottoms up approach is really understanding what's happening out there be it the uh, a field service technician, be it someone in the retail, um, sitting out there. Somebody in the warehouse. Distribution center. Right. Um, the drivers, really understanding what's happening out there. And it's really a, gra- I'll call it, it's a grassroots understanding because when, when we go out and we consult with companies and we go have a conversation with someone who's working maybe on the other side of the world from where the corporate headquarters are and engage in a discussion with them around, okay, for example, you're you're in the field and you're supporting um, or you're being supported by corporate to do all these things to be successful. What do you really need and what works and what's not working? You you uncover a huge amount of opportunities where they say, look, here's a bunch of stuff I'm getting from corporate and I don't need and here's some stuff I do need and usually what I don't need exceeds what I do need. And once they start understanding what's really needed to support the company and make it happen and really say, okay, let's say you're a retail organization. What does it take to support a, a store? Or you're a, um, 
a, a um, uh, manufacturing company? What does it take to support a manufacturing facility from a corporate perspective, really understanding what does it take and, and, and taking a hard look at your overhead and, and aligning roles and responsibilities. Until you take that bottoms-up approach and get the information, and I'm not talking about doing long data analytics or anything no. like that, but really getting some good trends and understanding what's happening out there and do, going through a rationalization process against that strategy, that until then, that you're, you're always going to be second-guessing yourself. So taking that top-down, bottom-up approach is typically what we take, and it works really well. And it makes the cost-cutting stick, too. Right. Well, because from a bottoms-up perspective, the people who are going to be the most affected actually then own the solution. Because if you just take a pure top-down approach or a pure headquarters-driven approach, people in the field aren't going to buy it, and they're certainly not going to necessarily comply to it. Right. And if you, once you start engaging people in the field, what, what ends up happening and what we've seen with our clients, it becomes more buy-in and the change that's happening becomes less of a culture um, a hit to the culture. Now, yeah, there's going to be people that leave, but typically if you take the right approach, the people that need to leave left. Right. Well, and you definitely hit on something. The people in the field will own it. The other thing that we've found is that when you take this bottom-up, you add this bottom-up approach to it, sometimes the change can be more dramatic than what you thought it could be. These people in the field, they're not dumb. They know, you know, the company's struggling. They know things have to change. And if you approach them, they, they may have ideas that are even more dramatic and, and bigger change and bigger cost-cutting than if you just sort of guessed and, and did it just by the numbers by themselves. No, you're absolutely right. And I'll leave with one example here is we worked with a company where um, their goal, cost-cutting goal, was was $80 million a year. That was their target. Um, when we went through this entire process, we actually ended up with $300 million a year versus that $80 million a year. So we almost tripped, we more than tripled the, the um, goal around what could be cut, and they've sustained that. So... That it's huge if you take the right approach. Right. And if you want to learn more about kind of what we're talking about, please reach out to us at info at trinity.com or bill at trinity.com or Peter, or Peter at trinity.com. Trinity. There you go. Well, listen, I want to thank uh, all seven of our listeners for uh, sitting uh, well, sitting with us. Well, actually, four still listening right they, now. They have four, yeah. The other three just kind of dropped off a while back when we started talking about, you know, cars. Um, but I also wanted to say thank you very much to our sponsor, Evan360. Your company's hub for immediate problem solving. If you're a large organization and are looking for opportunities to cut costs and how you serve the field and serve your, your internal customers or even external customers, Evan360.com is the place to learn more. 